Thanks very much. Um, the title I've given is Lost Objects, Imaginary Assemblages and the Mass Graves of the Spanish Civil War. Um, and I'm hoping that this will be a way to talk about uh, a range of objects, uh, the power of objects um, in my research in the exhumations of uh, Spanish Civil War victims um, and to have uh, some reflection on the different uh, kind of life cycle of those objects, um, the different incarnations they have, and particularly their imaginative hold, the, the imaginative power, and also the imaginative work, the, the imaginative work and the imaginative assemblage or assembly making that people do when they engage with this topic uh, of the war dead. So I'll just begin by introducing the whole area of the exhumations in Spain, the current exhumations ongoing. Um, the Spanish Civil War between Franco's forces and the Republicans was fought out on battlefields, but was also marked by a very high number of civilian deaths. Driven by a complex range of ideological class and occasionally personal motivations, many of those killings took the form of extrajudicial abductions and executions, with victim and perpetrator often known personally to each other or even related to each other, as occurred in my field sites. Uh, my field sites are all in the Borgos province of Castile-Leon. Um, I have excavated uh, mass graves or participated in these investigations all over Spain, but my particular focus for my doctoral thesis and then my book was the Borgos area, uh, which is kind of north-central Spain. The massacres orchestrated by Franco's forces in this region were underpinned by official bureaucracy, but were activated by networks of personal relationships in the detailed uh, denunciations and blacklisting which occurred in lots of tiny, small communities. Um, so it was quasi-official, quasi-judicial, but also highly personalised. Um, in the wake of these killings, so in uh, the villages I focus on, uh, up to 50 individuals would be killed at a single time, so several dozens at a time would be executed. And in the wake of these killings, the families of the victims, and they were uniformly um, working class or middle class men who'd shown sympathy with Republican or leftist politics or trade union activity. And in the wake of these killings, their families were strongly persecuted, their homes were looted, uh, they were fined, um, there were incidents of sexual violence or rape, there was ritual humiliation, there was blacklisting. Uh, which meant people became unemployed, uh, there was imprisonment. It was really sustained persecution happened, a really cataclysmic event in these small villages. Um, so under Franco's subsequent dictatorship, there was a total prohibition on mourning or commemoration for the Republican dead, despite the celebration of, of the Francoist dead. Uh, there are estimated to be between 40,000 and 60,000 Republican civilian victims remaining in mass graves throughout Spain. But prior to 2000, a strong taboo surrounded the public acknowledgement of the existence of the dead or their graves. Um, the 40-year dictatorship under Franco was marked by periods of extreme political repression, censorship and surveillance. Spain's transition to democracy in the 1970s has been uh, characterised as a pacted transition, full of compromises, um, and has been described as the pact of silence or the pact of amnesia, where it was felt by, uh, by all sides, but particularly by the uh, political left, that they had to swallow or repress this past in order to achieve some kind of um, political progress towards democracy. However... A radical shift in Spain's memory politics has been achieved since 2000 by Republican memory campaign groups spearheaded by the group Memoria Historica. The primary activity of this campaign group is the exhumation, identification, reburial and commemoration of Republican remains from mass graves. This is largely a grassroots campaign with a significant involvement of the families of the dead and has resulted in the exhumation of hundreds of graves to date. The exhumations have triggered massive public engagement with the whole question of the war dead, as well as a wealth of media, artistic and online representations of the war. And this issue of the, the kind of wealth of representation, there's a kind of storm of representation that gathers around these graves, 
Uh, and in my book, I talk about the opening of the graves as opening a, opening a discursive and opening a representational space in which these different representations flood in, um, which is part of the way I want to look at the objects uh, in this paper. This paper is based on extensive field work, both excavating graves and interviewing uh, relatives of the dead, witnesses to these events, uh, descendants of the dead, archaeologists in small villages in central Spain, uh, forensic practitioners, basically all of those who orbited around these exhumations. In this paper, I'll look at the bodies and objects found in these graves, particularly in relation to those that are not found in these graves, and, and really look at the missing objects and the present objects and the tensions between them and the lines that are drawn between them, the connections. I'll look at the objects that are lost, remembered and imagined, as well as those that rematerialize in exhumation. I will look at how remembered and imagined objects accrue and adhere to these bodies and graves and form what I call imaginative assemblages. I will look at the particular power of missing objects over the imagination and how they can be more powerful than those that are present. Even when the act of exhumation is producing such an intense material record of tangible and often striking objects. I'll explore how a particular canon or repertoire of objects come to be associated with particular historical events, becoming an iconic shorthand for episodes or eras in the past and therefore a shared resource when thinking about these episodes in the past and how they um, allied with people's imagination and people's personal knowledge of, of objects and mementos. Drawing on the concept of post-memory, um, a, a concept primarily used in, in Holocaust studies, primarily developed in Holocaust studies, I'll consider how people gather together and structure these different categories of objects in the process of making sense and emotional meaning from the past. Finally, if I have time, I hope to look at the particular power of objects that come to be associated with forensic investigations and the forensic object, particularly in the identification of the dead or in the reconstruction of their deaths. So the first uh, category of objects I want to look at um, is this category of lost objects and more specifically stolen objects um, and the preoccupation in these villages in my field sites with objects that were lost and stolen. Uh, some context for this discussion is that these grave sites, um, unlike a conventional police investigation or unlike some international investigations around the world, these grave sites are very open access. They, are, they become a type of community forum. Um, they change day by day, they draw people to them, and they become a space where people can give testimony or memory um, and particularly elderly people will spend hours or days at a time watching the progress of the grave and watching who comes and goes and deciding what to contribute in terms of their memory and testimony. Um, so, a certain proportion of the interview questions asked by Memoria Storica and their investigators at my field sites could be classed as forensic in that they directly borrow from performer used to exhume and identify bodies from mass graves around the world. This process essentially involves the collection of anti-mortem data, anything that can be found out about the individual as they were in life, be it descriptions, photos or medical records, and then comparing this with post-mortem data, which is the unique characteristics of the human remains and objects found in the grave. Securing an identification depends upon the matching of anti- and post-mortem data. A key piece of information to enable an individual identification of a skeleton is a description of the probable clothing and any personal artefacts likely to be encountered. And this is particularly the case when I was working on these mass graves uh, fairly early on in the campaign activity when I would describe these as very low-tech investigations. Resources for things like genetic testing and even the technological know-how to <coughs> carry out genetic testing was not really an option at most of these grave sites. So instead, they needed to harness as much memory uh, and anti-mortem data as they could uh, from relatives of the dead and from witnesses. Uh, I observed this interview process multiple times and was struck by the same fundamental misunderstanding that was repeatedly arrived at. A local informant, be it a relative or a witness, would describe a piece of clothing or an object, for example, a suit, a belt, a wallet, a watch, 
um, a ring, and the archaeologist would react excitedly, sensing the possibility of achieving identification of the skeleton, or at least achieving some um, evidence towards a probable identification. Once the object had been described in great detail, and all its qualities expanded upon and noted down by the investigator, it would emerge that it had almost certainly been stolen at the time of death and therefore could not possibly reappear during the gra- in the grave during the exhumation. These thefts were widely known about because reportedly the killers would wear or use the objects upon their return from the killings. I initially took this as an example of the mismatch in expectations and assumptions between the scientists and the informants, with the investigator deeply entrenched in the logic of their working practices, And I also took it as an illustration of the power relations between the investigator and the informant, and I talk about this a bit in my book, and it's something I found quite moving to observe, which is that uh, relatives of the dead in particular want to be as helpful as possible. They want to follow the format or paradigm of the interviews and the investigation to furnish the right kind of memory that will serve the investigation, even if that doesn't add up to to the memory that they genuinely have, or the lack of memory in many cases. Um, So I just want to... uh, Just some more images of the way people visit and watch the grave and uh, bring children and other relatives to the grave to show them and and use the grave as a, a visual cue to start imparting family history. Many, in many instances, this is the first time that any of this family history will have been imparted across the generations. So I just want to look at some examples of quotes. If it's possible to identify them, yes, I want, them to, that, I want that they identify them. My uncle had a good pocket watch. I know about it. It was a gift. So remember, this is someone talking about uh, an uncle who died 70 years ago and is recalling that he had a good pocket watch that was a gift. But they robbed him after they (coughs) killed him. Um, And there's a a further quote. Another old man that they killed some days after, this man had a corduroy suit, and then they took it off him to put it onto another. Another man from my village had a new belt for his trousers. They took it off him. There was a man from Villa Vieja, the, the village where this exhumation occurred, who was wearing it in public until very recently. Look at these burdens that they put us through. So this idea that there was systematic robbing of the bodies um, and also that people would flagrantly or or blatantly return wearing these objects, uh, potentially as trophies and signifiers of what they'd done, uh, is a very strong theme throughout the graveside discussions. Um, I noted a particularly noisy discussion of this corduroy suit so at the time um, corduroy suit was fashionable it was uh, quite modern uh, for 1936 um, and it had been considered a striking item of clothing a striking and uh, desirable item of clothing so there was a noisy discussion at the grave edge in which the participants agreed that it had been an expensive, fashionable, newly purchased suit and was immediately recognisable when the killer returned wearing it. Knowledge of the perpetrator's identity was claimed by all of those present, but his actual name was never used. So this was a sustained discussion by elderly people at the graveside, saying that they either remembered or they had the transmitted memory that this had occurred, but they never talked about either the name of the dead or the name of the killer. They just talked about this suit. Um, And this was a form of self-censorship which I observed in every discussion at the grave's edge. It was an absolute taboo on using the proper names of the killers. Uh, The intimacy of such items, such as suits, belts and rings, all of them encircling or moulded to the body, um, uh, is a particular factor that recurs in these stories, in some ways making the theft more transgressive and shameful. Um, (coughs) And it's also suggestive of the way that these objects are standing in for the dead or representing the dead in complex ways. Uh, It's a particularly striking example. The ones who took them away were wearing their clothes. It was some bosses that were in the village, but they ordered other people to kill them just for a crust of bread. 
and one of my uncles that wore a gold signet ring, very good gold because he'd been working in France. They cut off his finger to remove it. All that we know. Uh, so to look at this quote in a bit more detail, this memory, all that we know is interesting in that um, as this, this child was, this, this elderly woman was a child at the time of the killings, a small child. So we're talking transmitted memory, and when she says we, it's a collective we of the family, that, that this particular characteristic of the killing, that her uncle's finger had been cut off, uh, was transmitted to her. Uh, and also the detail of the ring, that it wasn't just any ring, that it was gold and that it was particular quality because he had gone abroad to work and had this additional earnings or buying power from having worked abroad. It's an interesting level of detail. And also the hint in this quote of, of the economy of the killings that's going on. There's an economic transaction. The bosses are ordering the killings, other people are enacting the killings, and it's being described as being for a crust of bread. For, for, for food, for material gain, or, or for something very petty or small. But there is a material incentive there, a material reward for killing. Um, and I think this idea of cutting the finger off, as I talked about the things that were moulded to or encircling the body, this is really the ultimate example of something that should be inalienable to the body. It's a ring that won't come off, and even that doesn't stop the killers. They... They cut off the finger to obtain what they want. Um, final quote I want to consider uh, for this category of objects is uh, an excerpt from this <coughs> more extended testimony. My father was the mayor of Villa Vieja. And just to provide full context to this, uh, in this mass grave that we were looking at in Villa Vieja, the mayor and all of the town councillors that had served with him were killed in the same episode. So the collective identity of the people in this grave is very starkly clear in terms of them being involved in civic life, political life, and all having the same political affiliation. My father was the mayor of Villa Vieja. He left six orphans. They seized our house and left us in the street. They'd already had the thought to share all the goods between them. The guilty ones were two butchers because my father was a butcher, and for envy they denounced him, for envy and for our things. Um, so I think this is, uh, I think there's multiple interpretations to make of, of the way that these particular narratives, this narrative trope recurs again and again and again around the graves, uh, and the way these objects are standing in for the names, uh, any other discussion of the people and their biographies. Um, I think uh, this identification of envy is a, a key feature. So the concept, the, there's a particular um, transition made in this excerpt, which is that although her father was the mayor, the real reason he was killed was because he was a butcher. And it was actually jealousy of his butcher's business and not all his activities in civic and public life as a prominent Republican that had got him killed. So the death has been depoliticised, it's been repackaged here as having this different underlying motiva motivation, which is envy and material gain. Um, and I think this concept of envy is important to explore, but there's also... Um, a lot of other things going on here that I'd like to talk about of why these material objects, these lost objects, uh, are continuously reached for in these narratives. I think part of what's going on is to lend specificity and veracity or a kind of reality effect to the events that the uh, speakers haven't witnessed or can't remember. There's immense uh, social stigma and emotional anguish attached to the fact that the memory of the events is often very hazy, that the transmission has been incomplete or partial, that a lot of these things happened when these people were children, that these things have been repressed within the home and not fully transmitted to them. Um, and I think anguish accrues to those types of historical events that are only partially understood in that way. I think there's a lot of shame attached to... This is their moment or this, their final, um, their final opportunity to give testimony about what's happened. And the gaps in their knowledge 
become exposed, and I think that causes a lot of anguish, that they don't know the circumstances of, the, in many cases, their own father's death, uh, let alone have any personal memory of their father's. And I think by reaching for the tangibility or the materiality of the objects um, and in inserting this reality effect into the narratives, they're um, reassuring themselves, they're gaining credence for their accounts, they're making a claim to authority in their testimony, and by drawing attention to small details, um, they're achieving this. And I've been interested reading about... Um, this idea of the, the detail, the specificity, tangibility that's been talked about in other incidents of traumatic memory. And from a psychological perspective, it's uh, often noted as a feature in traumatic memory, uh, suggesting that when something is remembered particularly starkly, these small details come forward and, and stick in the mind, and therefore it's a function of memory. But I think in these cases, it's much more a function uh, of narrative, of a particular post-memory a genre of narrative and it's not the starkness of memory it's the precise opposite it's the absence of memory and that people are reaching for the reality effect because it's a post-memory it's been transmitted and if we think about this issue of depoliticizing the deaths um, that links to the fact that these are transmitted because it became almost immediately after these men were killed it became an absolute taboo to really discuss or identify who these men had been, what they stood for, and why they were killed. And instead, other things were talked about to replace, to fill that vacuum. And the things that were talked about were the low motives um, of one's neighbours, the betrayal that were experienced in these communities, these um, depoliticised motives like envy and material greed. Uh, and that gradually took over and replaced any kind of historical or political specificity that surrounded these deaths. And it was also a way of claiming exceptions. So a lot of people had a narrative form where they said, some of the people in this village were killed for being communists or republicans, but my particular father was killed for this other reason. So it's a claim of exempting one's own father from any political taint or political responsibility. And that's because the belief that these people, the victims, held the victims were responsible for their own deaths by holding this ideology, by being Republicans. That belief is so deeply inculcated that people need to claim that their own father was the exception or was outside of this. Um, I also uh, found the kind of repetition in these testimonies interesting and also very moving because they had the quality of something like a litany. They were repeating certain details verbatim, and I found that suggestive of things that had been absorbed repetitively, for example, through a parent in the home. And I felt it gave me some insight back into a time in these bereft homes where certain narratives were being repeated uh, by the bereaved family that were left behind. I also think um, that certain analysts have been very dismissive of this claim of envy, and the obsession with material goods. And I also think, to give it its context, these were extremely... Many of these communities were extremely poor, and they suffered a great deal of material deprivation in the Civil War and in the years afterwards. And the objects would assume also a material significance when these families were completely deprived to have lost things like watches and rings and these key valuable objects started to assume... A, a big psychological importance in these households. Um, and I also think it was a way of criticising the killers, the only available way to morally condemn the killers, because they couldn't morally be condemn them for being Francoists or for participating in the killing, but they could morally condemn them for being envious, for being thieves, and for being opportunists rather than true Francoists or true ideologues. Um, I want to uh, slightly change the direction and look a bit more about what happens once objects do start appearing in the graves. So not to just talk about these lost objects or these imagined and remembered objects, but to talk about the objects that actually turn up and to look at some of the qualities of those objects. So just to consider a few images that's from this same grave site in, in Villa Vieja. Um, things like spectacles, things like pocket watches, uh, things like a pencil, very simple things, 
things like uh, a plastic comb. And for me, particularly, things like uh, the spectacles and the plastic comb, their modernity, uh, the lack of uh, transformation that they've undertaken, the way they look like they could be two years old, five years old, ten years old, is particularly striking. And it does lend the open grave this particular... um, it lends it a particular aesthetic, um, which some people are quite resistant to talk about, the fact that the open mass grave has an aesthetic power or an aesthetic charge, uh, because they think it in some way trivialises or diminishes the opening of the grave. But um, I want to analyse the, the fact that um, the aesthetic qualities, or the, if you prefer, the visual properties of the objects that recur in this grave are a very big part of the effect that this whole campaign has had on the memory politics in Spain, and that those coordinating and campaigning the exhumations are aware of this. Even if they don't always explicitly recognise it, they're cognizant of it. Um, these objects also have the, the, the obvious power of reminding people how recent this was. So this is not ancient history. These are not Roman excavations or prehistoric excavations. These are 20th century um, events, and these are objects that are so... Some of them are so recognisable and familiar and and so interchangeable with the objects that you might have in your own pockets or bag that uh, it creates a kind of (coughs) proximity or connection to the dead. Um, And to talk about how this visual or aesthetic power of the objects is harnessed or um, is employed by those campaigning uh, for Republican memory, I want to move on to this topic of a canon of objects or a a repertoire of objects and how certain objects stick, seem to stick more to the events than others. So certain objects... There's this huge richness of material objects being uncovered uh, in each of these mass graves. Um, But some objects seem to rise to the top and become more emblematic or iconic than others. And I want to look at some of the processes by which that happens. So it's important to remember that there's um, very intensive media coverage, particularly in the early uh, days of this campaign, I've worked on some mass graves where a different media outlet visited the grave every day of of the exhumation. Um, And the stories, however short the copy was or however brief the article was, they're always accompanied by strong visual imagery. They always had teams of photographers and film crews um, attending the exhumations. And that's just an example of a news film crew that come... Um, to try and get close-up shots of the bodies as they're emerging out of the soil. And, uh, for example, I found it striking that on several, uh, several excavations, people would say uh, particular key objects don't remove the objects until they have been viewed in situ. So if, for example, El País, which is a very significant uh, national newspaper in Spain and gives largely sympathetic coveraging, coverage to Republican and left-wing memory. If El País journalists was coming, certain key objects that were very illustrative, um, like shoes and glasses, uh, bullets, uh, ballistic evidence surrounding the, the skull, they wouldn't be removed. They'd be all left in situ, even if that changed the course of the actual excavation, so that the photographs could be taken just as, the, just as they'd been exposed. <coughs> So they weren't modifying or manipulating anything, but they were taking the decision to harness the visual power of what they'd exposed in the mass grave. Um, And the people who were involved in these exhumations have been, particularly the relatives of the dead, many of them have been reading up or on researching, using internet and news media, these exhumations for months or in advance of the exhumation coming to their own village. So they're not coming into this completely fresh or blind. They are immersed in a repertoire of visual images that they've already seen, and that's informing their expectations or their understanding of what will be found in this particular grave. Um, I want to focus on a couple of key events that happened in the exhumation at this, in this village, Villavieja, um, 
and also key events in the exhumation in a neighbouring village, Las Campanas. Um, and look at how the organisers and the forensic practitioners are also using objects to structure particular narrative or particular representation of what the exhumation is and who the dead are. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is there was a public information meeting, a, a kind of public presentation that was convened very early on in the exhumation and it was totally open to anyone in the community but especially the relatives of the dead and it was to explain to them step by step how their relatives would be exhumed, how they might be identified and how other success stories from exhumations that had already happened in Spain, how that had worked, to give them examples. And it was partly, um, I mean, it's very good practice in any kind of specialist or expert undertaking to have public outreach and explain to people in as much detail as possible what would happen. Um, but it was also to try to make people reflect on what information and knowledge they had that could prove pivotal to the investigation. So to make people go back through things like letters and photographs and family mementos and see whether they could reach a, make a connection with the evidence in the grave. And although a lot of the identifications are made on highly technical things, a lot of forensic anthropology, analysis of details of the bones, the presentation really focused on material possessions, everyday possessions. So it was really strongly communicating to lay people, members of the public, the identity of your relative or your community members could lie, that the key to the identity could lie in these apparently mundane possessions. Um, and this is an example of one of the photos that was shown in that public information meeting, which shows uh, the portrait photo of a very young victim, uh, young Republican uh, victim killed in the Spanish Civil War alongside a zipper, a zip that was recovered from his uh, sternal bone, his breastplate, in the mass grave, which led to a provisional or presumptive identification that was later confirmed by other features. So it made a strong connection for those in the audience between this portrait photo that showed, so if you can see there, the zip at his neck, and that this was quite an unusual garment for the time, called modern, and there's the zip that was recovered from his skeleton in the grave. Uh, and another example of objects that featured very heavily in this public information lecture that all of the village community attended were the letters of the dead. And the letters of the dead were shown um, in a PowerPoint presentation. This is one of the slides from the presentation. And they were read out to the people who were assembled there and the combination of the quality of the old letters, the scrappy notes, the handwriting particularly the kind of historic or dated handwriting and the sentiments expressed in the letter, extremely moving sentiments expressed in the letter. So for example this letter conveys um, the man conveys his love for all of his family. He tells them not to regret anything. He says that he's going to die a good death or that he considers it a good death. Um, really moving sentiments. Uh, and also remember that this is for a group of people who don't have an equivalent to this. The particular events that happen in these villages, there are no goodbyes, there are no letters, there are no last wishes or these kind of sentiments so for, for some relatives of the dead there's a certain level of projection where they can project onto th this is what would have been said in my family if it could have been communicated um, and these letters are being presented as evidence it's not just the emotional power of them, they're being presented specifically as evidence because many of the letters have dates and times and locations that link them to, example, to prisons where people were held before execution or to particular known execution sites where there were roundups of people. So the letters do function as evidence, but they also have this powerful emotional charge. Um, and I want to just focus on a second key event, another pivotal event in the process of exhumation in the same field site which is the closing ceremony that was held after the excavation of that mass grave and 
The closing ceremony had already been organised. Everyone for all the surrounding area had been invited and the excavation was really working up towards the deadline to get the last set of remains out of the grave before everyone arrived that evening to pay their respects and mark the end of the exhumation. And it was a very emotionally charged occasion, one of the most emotionally charged I'd attended. It was at dusk, um, it was a very hot day, suddenly became cold, everyone's shadows were cast into the grave. There was a lot, very subdued atmosphere that the grave had now been empty and that the bodies had been packed away. Um, and I would describe this as quite unstable. The, the mood about whether the exhumation had been the right thing, whether it was a redemptive thing, whether people were satisfied with it, was very unstable at that moment. And um, there was uh, a very interesting speech made by the lead archaeologist who had to open this ceremony with the, the first speech. And he stepped into the grave and he held up this ring. So this was the ring, and you have to look closely. That is on a finger bone uh, emerging out of the ground in the last skeleton to be excavated in that grave. And he brought the ring back with him that evening and he stepped into the grave and he held it up for everyone to see. And he said that the ring was a universal symbol of commitment. So I took it from that that he is he's stating that this is a wedding ring or a ring that's been used to make a vow. The ring was a universal symbol of commitment and that this ring represented both the bond or the commitment between the past and the present, so the kind of marriage or bond that we had made with the past, not to forget it, but also, interestingly, the bond or commitment that had been forged between the investigative team and the village, the community. So he was reiterating that bond at what I felt was a slightly ambiguous or, or tense moment. And it was a very powerful symbol. Uh, from the atmosphere and the gathering, it struck a very strong chord, um, and he also made it very clear the fortuitous discovery of this ring at the very last moment in the very last body, the same day as the ceremony, and really ascribed agency either to the ring or to the dead itself, that the dead had in some way willed this discovery to be made. Very explicit emphasis that this was a message from the past and that some message was being sent. And this is from the lead archaeologist who was, you know, very well-trained, uh, very highly competent, uh, excellent professional, working in the field of working with human remains and excavating skeletons, and could simultaneously hold that professional practice in his mind and ascribe a type of agency or a type of preordained or predestined uh, message from the past. Um, uh, and and really set the emotion, set the emotional tone for the whole closing of the grave. Um, so I want to draw those things together by talking about this idea of imaginative assemblage or the imaginative act of drawing together assemblages and how objects become firmly linked to each other that spatially or temporally have no true link um, and how people elide objects that they've heard about, objects that they've seen, uh, objects that they've imagined and elide them together and give them this equal force or equal weight when they're constructing meaning about the past. Um, I'm going to look at two quotes that have a lot of parallels from volunteer archaeologists who worked not just on this exhumation but many others who went on to work on many exhumations in Spain and were experienced archaeologists. Uh, so this is quite an extended quote but that's because it draws together so many of these elements. When only bones appear, I don't have any feelings because I spent four years working on excavations. But, when the, but the objects sometimes move me and tears come to my eyes because they give life to that particular corpse and I imagine that person walking around in their corduroy jacket with their comb and their razor because these are objects that you might see today. The combs and the watches have been the things that have most affected me and a ring that was uncovered on a finger today 
because that ring is saying your wife has been left a widow. My grandmother keeps such objects from her husband, shirts and a pen. For, he, for her, these are memories that have been able to remain. So, just to go into the quote in a bit more detail, um, this is an archaeologist who's been working in face-to-face, in real intimate proximity with all of the skeletons, with all of the objects. And uh, we didn't recover a corduroy jacket from these graves, firstly because the famous corduroy jacket had been stolen and was being walked around in for years afterwards, and secondly because textiles of that kind were really not surviving in this environment. Um, But she does have this concept of pockets, the, the personal possessions we found in pockets. And in the mass grave, with the type of preservation there is, you can really read where the pockets of suits, jackets, waistcoats, trousers would have been because you have these small constellations of personal objects, keys, um, cigarettes, lighters, and literally cigarettes, tobacco and paper survives. So you can see by the arrangement on the skeleton where the personal possessions would have been on the body. So she has read in a suit to the skeleton but she supplied the fact that it's corduroy from all of the discussion that happened around the grave about the famous corduroy jacket, uh, as if she's seen it herself. And she then points to the ring, and the ring, there's no evidence that it was a wedding ring. There's nothing in particular about unmarried or married males and rings that they were wearing to suggest that there was any consistent pattern of, of wearing a wedding ring, particularly in 1936. But she has taken this message from the closing ceremony that the ring is a vow, and she says, that ring is saying your wife has been left a widow. So she's also taking all the emotional charge of the many people that came to the grave and talked about the grief in their households. And she's emotionally identifying not with the dead, but with the people that have been left behind. And she's making an immediate connection between widowhood and her own grandmother, and memorial practices that she observed in her own grandmother. Um, Objects like shirts and a pen, and suggesting that that these are certain memorial objects that can can carry memory. So she's ranged completely freely around testimony, the objects in the grave, objects that she's seen at home, in her grandmother's home, um, and they've elided together in this kind of imaginative assemblage about... Uh, and that creates emotional impact that, is, that accrues to particular objects more than others. Um, I also find this second quote uh, very interesting. I found it interesting at the time because this was someone who was quite highly politicised. Some people participating in these exhumations are quite explicit about their political sympathies, leftist sympathies that motivate them to do this work. of people working on all of these investigations are unpaid for most of the time. Most of what they undertake is completely voluntary. Some people have less politicised, more humanitarian, generalised kind of humanitarian motives. This is someone who had quite explicit politics, and I find that interesting in how it feeds into her, her interpretation. The pencils are the objects that impress themselves upon me, impress themselves on me, because they are a symbol of freedom of expression, and under dictatorship, they are a form of the power to express yourself. So, even though all of these killings occur pre-dictatorship, she is making a connection between the tiny stub of pencil that we saw. That was the only pencil that we really recovered. We recovered some pens as well. Tiny stub of pencil. Um, and the subsequent Francoist dictatorship and her political knowledge <coughs> of that. And then she has this this highly personal element. My grandparents didn't talk about the war. Oh, sorry. These are the things that impressed me, especially after seeing those letters. So she's connecting the pencil in the grave to the PowerPoint presentation she attended where letters were read out, and they have elided together the letter, the letters and the pencil. My grandparents didn't talk about the war. They had bad experiences. My grandmother told me of some of the people who were taken away to be killed. In Valencia, they saw the processions of people going off to be shot, and these people gave them little notes for their families, saying, give this to my wife, give this to my daughter, because they knew they would never return. My grandmother, who was very young, was terribly moved by this. 
She died a long time ago, and you're scared to ask questions when you're little, but now I regret it very much. So she's elided the pencil in the grave that she helped excavate, a PowerPoint presentation where other people's letters were read, and her own snippet of memory from her family. She's identifying with her grandmother's experience of the war. Lots of the younger generation, as soon as they start talking about the theme of, of the Civil War and their impressions of it, immediately reach their grandparents as a reference point, but always with the caveat that they have almost no direct communication with those grandparents. And I had a very sad and very striking conversation with one person who was in charge of collecting the oral history. And I said, why are you giving up your holidays to do this? And he said, I'm talking to other people's grandparents because I can't talk to my own. So it was much less charged and painful to take this out into another community, different other people's grandparents, other people's family history. But inevitably, it brought people back to reflect on their own family histories. Um, the final thing I want to talk about in the little bit of time that I have is to talk about um, the objects that were found from the grave that did contribute to identification and the charge, the kind of emotional power that accrues to the, these objects once it becomes clear, once it's revealed to the community and the relatives of the dead that certain objects have been pivotal or have at least contributed to tentative or confirmed identifications. And just to make it clear, there were a couple of different... Um, well, the, the occupations of everyone in the mass grave in this particular case was, was pretty much known. There was a, a very good working list of who was in that grave. And there was also the suggestion or the rumour that it contained two journalists, journalists who had been investigating mass graves in the area. This is very early on in the war when things are very much very chaotic and it's not known in the capital, Madrid, exactly what's happening in the regions and the rural areas. So... These are two journalists who have witnessed other mass graves or who are asking questions, and they end up being caught up in this violence. And there were two individuals in this grave who were dressed quite differently, had different personal um, accessories, uh, things like cufflinks, the quality of their watches, very suggestive of uh, urban dress, different clothing. And they both had these bottles... And the residue was actually investigated in these bottles, and they're bottles of ink. So these were people carrying pens and ink, which no one else in the grave was. So it's suggestive, it gives a provisional idea that you might want to focus on these two bodies as, as possible journalists. Um, and it led, lends credence to witness accounts and accounts that there were journalists in this grave. Um, another object... Um, is uh, part of old electrical light fittings from the 1930s. And there were a group of a father and some brothers. So there were several electricians, people that were, worked in electrical fitting, and there were lots of these kept cropping up in people's trouser pockets, what would have been their trouser pockets and jacket pockets, and we didn't know what they were until someone took us to a really old barn that had... 1930s light fittings and wiring still visible they had never been stripped out and said that's what they are and they were identical they were identical to the point that made me wonder whether those guys had fitted out the barn but um, so these objects in terms of their aesthetic power compared to something like the glasses with all their associations of the face and with sight um, or the watch with all of its associations of moving parts and temporal markers and time. They're slightly unglamorous or not very powerful objects, but because they became implicated in these identifications, they accrued a particular power. Uh, and the final example is these distinctive gold teeth in a time when not everyone had any dental work, let alone gold dental work, and this was recognised these particular teeth were actually recognised by um, a, a child of the deceased. Um, all of these things, when the identifications were revealed to the relatives of the dead, 
there was a really strong fascination, really strong charge that associated with this, this kind of act of revelation. And it was quite theatrical, it was quite a moment of performance when the identifications were revealed to the community. And I just want to briefly talk about, want to um, refer to Zoe Crossland's work. I don't know if those of you who read Zoe Crossland writes about various aspects of theorising evidence uh, and clues. She has a piece called On Clues and Signs when she talks about um, the presence of uh, metonymy um, and different types of metaphor to structure the relationship between clues and signs and the solution in forensic cases and that there's a a natural fascination or, or attraction with these things that have this metonymic relationship between a tiny part and something massive, something uh, much bigger, <coughs> and that um, it's the apparent insignificance, something so mundane and plain as an electrical light fitting, a bottle of ink, a gold filling, is the apparent insignificance, uh, and also the fact that they seem, um, it seems so contingent or so random. What's, what survives and what doesn't survive? What gets picked up and what doesn't? What is noted by the expert? How does the expert's gaze, the forensic gaze, turn this seemingly insignificant and, and worthless thing into a thing with such import or meaning as to reconstruct the identity of an anonymous dead body. And I think there's really interesting links between, in this particular case, the kind of type of enchantment almost or fascination that accrues around these objects for relatives of the dead and the type of power that they ascribe to those previous lost objects, the objects that were so attractive the gold ring that was very good because it was from France, the good watch, um, the beautiful corduroy suit, that there's some kind of inherent property to these objects and it's not immediately apparent at the time, but only later is, is revealed. And that kind of revelation of their significance is, is very interesting to me. Um, and also the idea that there's something kind of preordained, predetermined or something prescient about these objects that that they will recur and turn up, like the ring that turns up on the finger in the very last moment of excavation, that it's there to tell you something. Um, that assigning of agency to objects, uh, to have this message for us, I think is, is very powerful. Uh, and it's something that I would... It's something I'm trying to write about at the moment um, in relation to World War I bodies, um, and I think something that I would welcome comment on as well. That's it. Thank you.